Hello and welcome to Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast brought to you by the Society of Graduate Students from Western University to the world. If you've been curious what happens at Western's graduate research scene, this is the show for you. My name is Nav, thank you for joining us. And my name is Nick, and today we have a very special guest with us today who's going to talk about this incredible research into proteins that are very important and involved in some diseases. So that's what we're going to talk today. Our guest is Cecilia Chavez-Garcia, and why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, my name is Cecilia, and I'm a PhD student at Chemistry. So in during uh, before before we got in the recording room you had mentioned that your research on proteins has uh, a medical implication could you could you just briefly run us through that on what that is about well the medical implication is a little further down the road from what i'm doing right. but well, basically yeah, all, all research <laughs> is usually in the future yeah but basically what i'm trying to do is figure out how proteins mm-hmm. work or okay. do not work sometimes we study mutations mm-hmm. that generates some disease so we try to see what are they doing um, uh, in order to figure out a way that eventually will lead to the discovery of a new vaccine or new medicine so that that's fascinating so why don't we just like back up a bit so you're doing your phd in chemistry and which lab are you are you working in i'm currently working with miko kartunen uh who has both an appointment with chemistry and with applied math and you are doing something called molecular dynamics am i wrong uh yeah that's right okay so why don't you tell us a bit about that and and so so you're looking at these proteins which are you know involved in in humans as we as you just said but what exactly uh, are you looking at in well actually let's ask first what kind of proteins are you looking at so i'm looking at intrinsically disordered proteins which are proteins that do not have a specific configuration they can change um, a long time so so by configuration do you mean like their shape what does that exactly mean uh, the way they are folded so proteins can form beta sheets helices they can just be coils and that that way of folding can change like they can fluctuate and what's special about these intrinsically disordered proteins that in terms of in terms of the structure that you mentioned so they they are never fixed they're always changing so when experimental guys uh, do experiments on them they only get averages so if they want some more specific information about how they are behaving there is no current way in which they can get that information experimentally so we do computational analysis, computational simulations of these proteins, and then get like extra information. So, and of course, the information that we get and that experimentals can also get should match. So it's also a way to make a control whether or not what we're doing is right. Okay, so in a way, so, so these proteins are moving too fast. They're, they're changing too fast that our current experimental methods cannot detect these changes and so instead we're going to simulate them with a computer and what we're going to compare between the experiments and the simulation is the are the averages mm. our average computer like what we compute the averages in the simulation should match with mm. the averages in the experiments yeah for example if 
experimentally you want let's say take a picture of the protein okay but taking that picture will take some time like you open your camera some light will pass through mm -hmm. and the lens closes and then you have your picture but if the protein is moving while you're taking the picture it will be blurred okay so what we can see in the simulations is like that picture but in more detail so what happened during that blurring and if we take the average of that we should be able to get the blurring that the experimental guy had and so if that blur matches between your computational simulation experiments as compared to like let's say like molecular experiments that they're doing in a different lab then that means that what they're doing is accurate right and yeah, no, it's, it's a validation for the both of us. I see. Okay. So how exactly does this simulation work? Do you, um, you know, I don't think either of us, are, you know, are that into like, or, or we don't know much about simulations of computers. So how exactly does it work? Do you program a, a sort of uh, way to measure these? Walk us through that a bit. So there's, also, there's already a software program that simulates these things for you. So they have inside all the parameters that are necessary, all the instructions that the computer needs to run the program, but you need to give the specific information about your system. So for me, it's more of using the tools that already exist than developing new tools. Okay. And when you say uh, uh, inserting the information of your system, what, what does that consist of? And what, what is the system in, in your case? So in my case, there are proteins. So I need to start with a structure for my protein. So first, some experimental people need to get, uh, maybe with crystallography or something similar, they need to get a picture of the protein of how does it look like. Once I have the picture, then I can use that information to make movies and see how they move. And when you say movies, is that like, I'm I'm imagining this protein that's actually like moving around and Yeah, so when you're running the program you put the information of all the atoms in your system. Okay. And then at every step the program will allow the atoms to move a little bit, then stop, mm -hmm. record the new positions, calculate the new forces that arise from the new configuration. Okay. And then with this new force, allow the atoms to move again a little bit. Okay, yeah, the, the forces, that's that's exactly what I was, I was trying to get to. Um, what are these forces that, that's between these atoms and molecules? So these atoms, they have charge. So okay. basically it's from um, the attraction or repulsion of these charges mm -hmm. um, okay. between the atoms and there are bonds between them. So they have some flexibility and then the ha they have some rigidity that you have to take into account. Okay, so it's like a spring system, like something like a spring with... Yeah, basically our system, it's our model is very, very simple, in fact. So okay. basically you just have like billiard balls mm -hmm. and if there's a bond, you put a spring between them. Okay. So it's just balls connected with strings mm -hmm. and then you let them move and see how they move. And if you have a very strong attraction between two molecules, it's just a spring with 
it's just a very thick spring it's a very strong spring and if you have a weaker attraction then it's a weaker spring and okay yeah, i get an exactly. idea now <laughs> yeah all right so so you're saying that you you know you have this complex protein you know with many different you know atoms and you know connections between them um charges between them and so you you use the computer to model that and then you just let it exist and it changes shape by itself right and so that's kind of what you're measuring over time yeah so for example you start with a configuration of the protein but that's only a picture of it's frozen mm -hmm. and when it moves it can go into different states i see so then it's not just watching the movie it's monitoring those changes mm -hmm. so we do have to watch the movie with another program so we do like see how the protein is moving but more important than that is taking the information from from that movie but without seeing it just using programming and try to get okay we have all this data because the movies are very heavy like we are talking gigabytes and gigabytes of information so the difficult part of this research is you have so much gigabytes of data how do you get something meaningful out of it so you basically have to do a lot of filtering data so uh, what exactly does that mean so for example when you are taking the averages taking an average it's filtering data mm -hmm. because you start with 20,000 points and you end up with only one. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that these um, intrinsically disordered proteins that move on their own and that their shape changes like on their own are involved in humans and potentially some diseases. So are you, are you also looking at you know, how these um, proteins might change in blood versus, you know, different kind of environments? Or are you just looking at the proteins like on a blank slate? Yeah, no, just proteins in solution. Because mm -hmm. when you're thinking about blood, to have blood, you don't need only one red cell. You need a whole lot of them. And every single cell will have a lot of different proteins and nucleus and a lot of things inside. So we are talking about a much smaller scale. So just one protein in a little box of water, not the whole thing. Okay, so we're digging into the specifics of your research. So could you just tell us what's the, what is the specific question you're trying to answer with your research? Like what is motivating you right now? So basically it's kind of a, a case by case thing. So every time I have a protein, I want to know how does it move, what kind of structure does it have. Um, if I mutate a residue that I know that it has been reported that causes a disease, okay, usually when experimentals do research, they know, okay, if I mutate this residue, then it stops working and somebody can get sick. But they don't know it stops working in which way. So with my movies, I can mutate a residue and see what kind of changes does it make. So maybe there's an important, an important part of the protein that is the one that does the work. And when you mutate a residue, that part stops working. And you can see why and how. Okay, so once you... It's almost like diagnosing a broken car. 
<laughs> like you're trying to figure out okay i think the spark plug is out or whether it's the carburetor or yeah which tiny part is kaput and then you go in and try to fix that <laughs> yeah well we don't try to fix it just yeah. figuring out which is a broken part that's enough for us okay but you yeah. are also looking at these uh, uh um, proteins on a surface versus suspended in a solution right Mm, that's one of our, my projects. So when we have a collaborator in Japan that is doing research on a specific protein, but in the way they're working, the protein is not in solution. The protein is on top of a surface. So they want to know whether the protein acts the same when it's in solution than when they have it in the surface. So I have two different simulations, one in solution, one with the surface, and I want to see if it if it acts differently or if it behaves differently because it's interacting with the surface. And what what changes in your simulation if so I take this protein and I put it in water, I take this protein and I put it in um say salt solution or I take this protein and put it in a different kind of medium. So what what changes in each of these environments? How does that how do these changes reflect the changes in your in your simulation so if you change the environment in which the protein is mm-hmm. it can fold itself differently it can break apart it can yeah basically just folding itself differently maybe it had a it was forming a helix maybe that helix breaks and then it's just like a random coil and that so so you're trying to find a relation between the environment and the structure actually i'm trying to prove that the surface does not affect the protein that the protein will behave the same because that means that the experiments they're doing in japan that what they're getting it's valid because it's the same that could happen in a cell because in a cell you don't have a surface you have a solution Now suppose it wasn't the case. What would that mean? That mean either one of us is doing something wrong and we would have to figure it what. Okay, and we're just speculating here, but Yeah. What do you think would or who do you think would be at who do you think would have to go back and revise the whole research? Probably both. All right. Yeah, I yeah, if something goes wrong, you cannot say, "Oh, I did everything perfectly. I there's mm-hmm. no way I made a mistake. You are the one that is wrong." You cannot Fair. do that. You have to go back, take a look again at what you did, and mm-hmm. figure out if there was a mistake along the way. Right, but as in what I'm trying to get to is, like, what's the implication for our understanding of this protein if it does not behave the way you expect it to? I think it would say more about the methods that we're using than about the protein itself. Because that would mean that there's something wrong in the way that we're measuring things, either in the experimental setup or in the computational setup. Okay, and this goes back to the challenge of measuring this protein that's changing all the time. Yeah. Okay. Now, I I just have a question about these uh, intrinsically distorted proteins. Is this like... You know, is this many different proteins that you're looking at? Um, like, is this like a class of proteins? Uh, so intrinsically disordered proteins is a specific class of proteins yeah. that don't have a st- specific mm-hmm. structure. 
So are you looking at like many of them or just one? So I'm currently looking at three of them. Three of them. Uh, and every one of them is like a project in itself. Mm -hmm. So I don't have like a big project for my PhD. So my project is like, oh, let's do research about this class of proteins. Um, but now the specific is, is, oh, this protein looks interesting because it's related to this disease. Mm -hmm. What can we do with it? And then two months later, my supervisor comes and says, oh, hey, I found out about this other protein and it also looks interesting. Mm -hmm. Why don't you work with it? So uh, is there like an estimate about how many are in this class of proteins? Um, like, are we talking about like hundreds of these? Yeah, hundreds. Hundreds, okay. Yeah, it's not so, because I'm just wondering, um, is, this, is your research uh, the type that you'd need to... Um, do this on a you know protein by protein basis or after you do after you like analyze enough of these proteins can you there then make a conclusion about all of them oh uh, no it has to be case by case, case by case and okay. i will not be able to study all of them it's just right i guess just couple. the ones that the research shows are kind of implicated in potentially these diseases also something that if my supervisor knows an experimental group that is working on a specific protein, then it's worth a shot for us to simulate that protein because then we can compare our results. If there's nobody else working on that, then... I mean, we could still do it, but it's more interesting if you get to compare your data with somebody else's. So, for example, let's suppose there's a protein which uh, we know catalyzes some other uh, effect in the cell. And we know there's a part of it that it's very important for its function. And if there is a mutation there, then the protein will stop working and then disease will happen. But that's all we know. So then we do simulations to see, okay, what happens in the protein when do we mutate this residue? And what might happen is that there may be a gate in the protein that closes. So then we can say, oh, if this gate closes, then the protein stops working. So we can develop a drug that will force that gate to open so that the disease will not happen. Okay, so this goes back to your mm, your your method of investigating, like what's the specific problem with the protein? Like why is it this one particular atom within that protein that's acting funny and trying to diagnose, trying to diagnose what's wrong with the protein. Yeah, and even without mutations, just getting information of how it moves and what are the important parts for this protein uh, that are related to its function. Even if we don't know anything about mutations, just figure out how it behaves will help develop a drug that can target it. Okay, so we want to get to know you a little more. We have explored your research now. And you told us earlier that you're from Mexico City. Yeah. So how long have you been in Canada now? So I have been now here for one year. Just a year? Just a year. So was that, I imagine that would have been your first year seeing snow? Uh, no, I have lived in Europe before. Okay. So I have lived through winter. But it's the first time that I have been like, through a c 
complete winter. <laughs> a and Canadian winter. A Canadian winter, <laughs> and it was six months of snow. Yes, it was. <laughs> so that was different. It's more. It's not about seeing snow. It's mm -hmm. about seeing snow for six months. So yeah. Straight. So what brought you to Can? I mean, what brought you to Canada? But also, what what uh, got you interested in this research? So I got interested in this research because I had the opportunity to go as an exchange student to Slovakia. Was this during your undergrad? During undergrad, okay. yeah. And then I went to a symposium and there was this woman that I don't remember her name, but she was doing research on simulations of proteins. And she told us how she had used a simulation program that is used to see how a car breaks when it crashes. She had used that program with her protein, which was never done before. And she had to do it because her protein was very big. And at the time, uh, she could not use the programs that are designed specifically for protein. She could not use them because she didn't have the computing power. So she used this and she was able to see how the protein moved. And she was very excited about her research and she was telling us how beautiful this was. And I was in turn excited by her excitement. And I decided that I wanted to do exactly that because it looked fun. Are you still s using the car simulator now? Is it the same program? Actually, I have never used that. No? I just <laughs> <laughs> I used the one that was specifically designed for proteins. Nice. <laughs> so then you, so that was during your undergrad. And then where did you go for your master's? So I stayed in Mexico for my master's. I just looked who was doing molecular dynamic simulations at my home university. And I originally, I did my undergrad in physics, mm. but it turned out that the professor I was interested in, she belonged to chemistry. Mm. So I ended up doing my master in chemistry. I see. So you made like a transition, but your, your research is kind of a mix of both really. Yeah, it's very yeah. interdisciplinary. You yeah. can find people that it's doing the same thing I'm doing, and they're coming from physics, from yeah. biology, from chemistry. Yeah. And then when you were finishing up your master's, what brought you to, to London, to Western? Uh, so after I finished my master's, I wanted to look for somebody else that was doing research in this field, uh, but maybe someone that had more experience than my former advisor, because she was great but she was also very young. So I wanted someone with more experience for my PhD. So I just looked up who was doing molecular dynamic simulations in Canada, and I found this amazing professor with a lot of research experience who had lived in different countries, in different universities, and he was working at Western. And that's Dr. Kartunen? That's Nico Kartunen. Yes, and so you've been he here for a year now. Uh, what are, I'm curious to know, like what are some of the kind of biggest differences between Mexico City and London? I mean, obviously they're totally different, but what is it like for you living here? Yeah, so at first it was a shock to come living in a like a small city um, after living in Mexico City. Um, at the beginning it's like, okay, it's a weekend. What am I going to do? And I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no clue what was I there are not that many theaters or cinemas or... And the bars close at 2 a.m. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah there, there aren't that many things, but um, I think I got used to it very gradually. And now I really like going outside, especially now that it's summer. 
and enjoy all the trees. And in Mexico City, there are some parks, but there aren't as many, and it's not like here that there are trees everywhere. That I, li- I really like that. Well, we did on the name Forest City for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so so what do you do when you're on your weekends? What do you like to do then? Um, I usually go swimming on the weekends. Right. I like going to the gym. Mm-hmm. Thing. It, it's something that can keep you busy and it's also healthy and. That's cool. That's really interesting to know. So, you know, obviously, I'm sure many people doing their PhD don't have an answer for this. Um, But with the amazing research you're doing and the passion you have for it, uh, where do you see yourself once you're done your PhD? Actually, I want to find a job in something related to programming. Okay. Because I really like this research, but doing this research also involves doing a lot of programming and writing your own scripts in order to analyze the data. And I realized I really like to do that. So I have two main options, like finding a job or staying in the academia. But staying in the academia usually means that you have to move around a lot. You you cannot say, oh, I will live in Canada forever, because what if you find a postdoc in France or in UK or in Australia? You have to be open to moving. And I don't really want to keep moving every two years. I don't want to move countries that often. Mm-hmm. And do I really like programming, so I would be happy to get a job. Do you want to stay in Canada? or? Yeah, I would like to stay yeah. in Canada. Well, thank you, Cecilia, for talking with us today. It's been a really great chat. Um, we're coming up to the end of our show. So at this point, we always give our guests the opportunity to... Um, tell the audience if there's any websites we can reach you at uh, so we have the website of our group that is called soft simu and also the twitter my supervisor really likes twitter so you can find lots of interesting things there which is soft simu underscore info perfect thanks all right everyone so this was uh, cecilia chavez garcia And you have been listening to GradCast on CHRW 94.9. My name is Nick. And my name is Nav. And this has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students. And uh, you can hear us every Tuesday at 6 p.m. But if you miss an episode live, you can go to www.gradcast.ca to catch up on older episodes. You can also check us out on uh, iTunes as well as... um, uh, Spotify. We have a new Spotify that you can check out as well. And if you'd like to check out our social media, you can go to Instagram or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. And if you'd like to contact us, you can email gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening. The GradCast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.